Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Decenter. I'm your host, as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Naomi Orescus. She's Henry Charles Lee, a professor of the history of science and affiliated a professor of Earth and Planetary Sciences at Harvard University. Uh, she, together with Eric Conway, were the authors of the best-selling book, Merchants of Doubt, and they are also authors of the, their latest book, The Big Myth, How American Business Taught Us to Loathe Government and Love the Free Market. And that's the one we're talking about today. So Dr. Oreskes, welcome to the show. It's a big pleasure to everyone. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Okay, so to perhaps introduce the book, tell us perhaps first, what is the premise of the book? And if I understand it correctly, there are some connections between this book, The Big Myth, and your other book, uh, Merchants of Doubt, right? Yes. The motivation for this new book came directly from writing Merchants of Doubt. So in that book, Eric Conway, I posed the question, why would intelligent people doubt the reality of man-made climate change? Because the scientific evidence already... 10 years ago when we wrote that book was overwhelming. Scientists from all across the globe had done very detailed studies. So why would anyone reject that science? And what we found was that the answer was political ideology and specifically the ideology of market fundamentalism. The idea that we can just trust markets to solve our problems and that government should just step back and let the market do its magic. So we left the book with that answer to the question, but like all good books, it leaves you with, uh, you know, wondering what comes next. And we realized that the next question was, well, why did they believe that? Why would anyone think that we could trust markets to solve all our problems when history clearly shows that's not true? And particularly when economists themselves have recognized climate change as a market failure. Nicholas Stern, the former chief economist of the World Bank, has called climate change the greatest and most wide-ranging market failure ever seen. So given the reality of market failure, why would people deny market failure to subscribe to this idea of market fundamentalism? And like everything we do, we start digging and it always ends up being a bigger problem than we anticipated. We thought we'd write a short book. No such <laughs> luck. What we found was this really astonishing story. More than 100 years of organized business propaganda and in several cases, the protagonists acknowledge themselves. They recruit Edward Bernays, who wrote the book Propaganda, and who's often considered to be one of the founders of public relations, a nephew of Sigmund Freud. Uh, they work with advertising agencies, PR agencies. They launch these massive propaganda campaigns to persuade the American people, and this is an American story, although it has some connections in Europe, uh, to persuade the American people that, that business is good, government is bad, that we should trust big business, but distrust big government uh, and not regulate the market, not pass laws and statutes to protect children, uh, workers in dangerous factories, uh, protect public health against harms like tobacco, um, and ultimately not pass laws or regulations to control climate change. So that's the story. It's a big book. It took over 500 pages. My husband keeps reminding me to tell the readers, you don't have to read the whole thing. You can read the chapters that are of most interest, but we track this story through early 20th century debates about child labor and workplace injury, through the New Deal, uh, through attempts to influence radio, television, film, 
children's books, and then into the politics of later 20th century America through the politics of Ronald Reagan, Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, uh, Bill Clinton, and up to the present day. Mm -hmm. But you call this ideology free market fundamentalism, and you went through some of the main ideas there. But uh, how old is this kind of ideology exactly? Well, that's a great question. We borrowed the term free market fundamentalism from George Soros, who wrote a big article back in the 1990s about how he thought that market fundamentalism was actually distorting markets, damaging the environment, hurting consumers, and, and in a way damaging capitalism itself, because one of the roles of governments is to protect capitalism, in a sense to protect it from itself, to protect legitimate competition in the marketplace, and to work to stop monopolistic practices. So Soros popularized that term. We thought it was apt, that it fit the people we were studying. Um, so in, in that sense, if, like in the Sorosian sense, it's a term that's been in use since the 1990s, but we can track it in a couple of different ways to older ideologies. And so one of the older ideologies is what today we call neoliberalism. And so that's a complicated term because people have used it to mean a whole lot of different things. But a key part of the story that we tell in the book is about the founders of neoliberalism, people who considered themselves neoliberals, who were connected to the Mont Pelerin Society, which was a group that was founded after World War II explicitly to promote pro-market policies against what they saw as more, the more socialistic trend, particularly in Europe particularly of the Western European social democracies. But that, of course, is linked back to laissez-faire economics. And so what we're describing is a kind of blend of elements of old-fashioned 19th century laissez-faire, just let, let the market do it, leave it to markets. Um, Mid-20th century neoliberalism that comes mostly out of Europe, particularly from the Austrian school of economics. So that's one way the story connects uh, mm -hmm. for European readers and listeners. And then into 20, the 20, late 20th century American manifestation of neoliberalism, which we describe as market fundamentalism. And that really develops with the presidency of Ronald Reagan and in, Euro in Europe and Britain with the, uh, not the regime, but <laughs> the, the rule of Margaret Thatcher. Maybe it was a right. regime. The regime of Margaret Thatcher in the United Kingdom. Would you label this sort of ideology as a form of right-wing libertarianism? Yes, absolutely. And that's another way of thinking about it. It is a form of libertarianism. Um, and some of the people that we we talk about in the book did self-identify as libertarians. So one of the people who is in our story is Rose Walder Lane. She's a very important figure in American history because her mother, Laura Ingalls Wilder, wrote one of the most successful children's book series ever in the history of the United States, the Little House on the Prairie uh, series. These books were sold as the true life story of a young girl growing up on the American frontier, but it turns out they weren't true. Um, they were very embellished and elaborated, and they weren't actually written by Laura Ingalls Wilder. Wilder wrote notes based on her own memory of her childhood, but her daughter, Rose Wilder Lane, crafted them into these stories, and her daughter was a leading libertarian thinker. She's one of three women, the other two being Isabel Patterson and Ayn Rand, who are often viewed as three of the foundational libertarian thinkers 
of American libertarianism, she was so to the right wing that Ludwig von Mises, one of the founders of the Austrian School of Economics, um, said he couldn't understand her. <laughs> and he thought that she was actually a crypto anarchist. That's what he called her, crypto anarchist. So a, a lot of this thinking is libertarian and sometimes even spills into anarchy, some, a kind of weird belief that we could somehow live without governance, which, of course, I mean, we know that's not true. Well, you know what about the little house on the prairie? Uh, I'm not from the 70s. I'm a 90s kid. But uh, if my mother watches this, you might have just ruined part of her childhood because <laughs> that series was also on TV here in yes. Portugal back in the 80s, I think. So. Yeah, tremendously influential, right? There was a television series. I didn't know that it was in Portugal, but it was very popular yeah. here in the United States. The original books were first uh, published in the 1930s, but the tele but they were still in print when I was a child. They were still in print when my children were growing up. And the television series was also, you know, I, I'm probably about the same age as your mother. So yes, profoundly influential stories that were really crafted to be libertarian parables of how we could all just succeed and prosper through dint of individual effort and patriarchal love. And we didn't need the government um, in this story, the government really just gets in the way. And so when it comes to this kind of free market fundamentalism ideology in the book, at a certain point, you mentioned that one of the things they try to base it on and use it to sell these ideologies, a tripod of freedoms, representative democracy, the Bill of Rights, and free enterprise, at least in the U.S. So could you tell us a little bit about this? Yes. So one of the questions we get asked a lot is, well, you know, what right do we have to call this propaganda? Why, why can't we just consider this to be a sort of legitimate alternative view? And of course, parts of it are alternative political views. And, and some of the questions they raise, like some of the foundational questions that are raised by the neoliberals about the appropriate balance between individual rights, the common good, governance, the market. These are legitimate questions, but we know it's propagandistic in part because we can see them crafting the story. And this is particularly true for this part of the book that um, involves a propaganda campaign that was launched in 1939 by a trade organization in the United States called the National Association of Manufacturers. So this was a group representing American manufacturers, factory owners, who had a very strong interest in pushing back against labor laws, against unions, against laws to prevent child labor, against the New Deal reforms that instituted things like minimum wage. So they were opposed to all of these reforms. They felt that as business owners, that they had the right to decide for themselves how to run their businesses. So it's a kind of property rights argument that this is my property and the government should not be telling me how much I should pay my workers or whether I can or cannot hire a six-year-old to work in my mill. So they organize a propaganda campaign. And I already mentioned Edward Bernays. There's one letter we found where they explicitly say, we need to recruit someone like Edward Bernays. So this is an acknowledgement that this is a propaganda campaign. And in the end, they do, in fact, recruit Bernays. So what is the campaign? The campaign is to try to persuade the American people that business freedom, the freedom of businessmen to run their own businesses as they see fit, is foundational to the United States as a country. And, and that it was, <clears throat> excuse me, 
and that it was that it was part of the conception of the country right from the get-go. And so they come up with this idea, which they call the tripod of freedom. As you said, that it has three legs, representative democracy, so far so good, the the civil and religious liberties that are enshrined in the Bill of Rights, like freedom of speech, freedom of religion. But then they add a third part, which is free enterprise. Now, there's a couple of things to point out about that. First of all, the phrase free enterprise is their own invention. You will not find that phrase in the Declaration of Independence. You will not find that uh, in the Constitution. And as far as I know, you won't find it in any statute that I'm aware of from the 19th century. In fact, the history of the 19th century in the United States was a history of very widespread government engagement in the marketplace to build infrastructure, uh, canals. Many canals were built by state governments and all kinds of rules and regulations, all kinds of restrictions. And of course, slavery was a highly regulated market. You know, not saying that was a good thing, but the idea that people were just free to do any old thing they wanted was never true, ever. Um, and the phrase free enterprise was developed by these folks. At that time, the phrase that was in common use was private enterprise to refer to the idea of a privately owned business or factory. But they reasoned that free enterprise would sound better, right? That a lot of Americans didn't like private property because it was mostly in the hands of you know, what we would today call the top 1%. But all Americans love freedom. And so if they could connect this idea to something that all Americans cherish, namely freedom, that that would be a way to sell this argument to the American people. And they say this explicitly in their memos. This is not me interpreting it. This is what they themselves say. And so they call it free enterprise, and they tie it to this notion of the tripod of freedom to persuade us that what is at stake here is the whole American way of life. And therefore, that ordinary Americans should oppose unionization, should oppose child labor laws, because it's a threat to American freedom. And that's the thread then that we see carried forward throughout the 20th century. It's taken up by the tobacco industry, who launches campaigns about the freedom to smoke. And it's taken up by the fossil fuel industry, who claims that climate scientists are trying to take away the freedom of the American people to eat hamburgers or drive big cars. So you've already mentioned there the little house on the prairie, but how is it exactly that this kind of ideology went mainstream? I mean, what were some of the other strategies, tactics that people used for it to really, particularly even more so, of course, taking into account the context after the Second World War, where, for example, in Europe, uh, Keynesianism was so mainstream and we had very socialist policies in place, for example, and in the US as well, to some extent. How was it that this ideology became so mainstream? Well, in a sense, that's the crux of the story we're telling. How, how does an idea, an argument take hold or how is it pushed out? Uh, to the American people. And so that's partly why this is a big book, because the answer is complicated and it involves work on many, many different levels and in many different domains. So during World War II, one of the key mechanisms is through radio. At that time, radio was the dominant communication mechanism in the United States. Um, that and film were the main places where Americans would hear news, but also entertainment. And so the National Association of Manufacturers developed a radio program, again, explicitly propagandistic, 
to argue against the New Deal, to say that New Deal reforms were socialistic, American. A lot of this argument is about, is red baiting, to say that these reforms are socialistic and European. A lot There's a very anti-European element to this whole story, contrasting socialist Europeans with Americans who, quote, love freedom. And so American capitalism is set up as a juxtaposition and an alternative um, to European and Russian socialism or communism. So radio is a very important part of the story in during World War II. After World War II, it shifts a bit away from radio and more towards film and television. Um, we don't talk a lot about television in this book, in part because the book was already getting really long and um, it, it was sort of a bit too much, although we talk a little bit about a television program called General Electric Theater. And this television program was super important for a couple of reasons. So first of all, like Little House on the Prairie, which was a very popular set of children's books, General Electric Theater was an extremely popular television program. It was one of the top three television programs in the United States in the late 1950s. It was wholly developed and devised by General Electric Corporation for the purpose of telling didactic stories about individual enterprise um, and people succeeding by dint of their own personal individual effort without the help of government. The host of that program was Ronald Reagan. And one of the arguments we make in this book that we think Reagan's biographers have paid insufficient attention to is that this is a key part of Reagan's transition. Because before he went to work for General Electric Theater, Ronald Reagan was an actor, but he was also a Democrat. In the 1940s, he had supported the New Deal and he was a union president. He was a president of the Screen Actors Guild. So it's a very elite union, but it is still a union. Right. By the time he leaves General Electric, his politics have changed completely. He's now a Republican, he's anti-union, and he's anti-government. And then he begins his political career with financial support from GE executives and other executives that uh, Reagan is introduced to through these GE connections. So we think this transition is really important and really consequential for American politics because Ronald Reagan then takes this set of beliefs into American politics, but the American people first hear it through a television program. One other area that it takes place, and I could talk for a long time here, so I'll try to I'll try to make my answers a little shorter, film. So one of the things we show in the book is how these folks working with the US Chamber of Commerce, which is another trade organization representing big business in America, pressure Hollywood to shift the tenor of their films. In the 1920s and 30s, there were many films made that were critical of big business, that were critical of banks, particularly during the Great Depression. But in the 50s, that changes. And there are, there's actually a set of instructions that is that are written uh, by the president of the American uh, Motion Pictures Association, who's a former Chamber of Commerce executive, instructing filmmakers not to make films that show rich people as villains or that show banks as villains. Um, but to make films celebrating individual enterprise, the free market, et cetera. One of the people involved in that is the libertarian writer Ayn Rand, who, as I've already mentioned, along with Rose Wilder Lane and Isabel Patterson, is considered one of the three most important libertarian thinkers of the mid-century and probably the most famous and the most popular. Rand writes a series of libertarian books, novels, two of which at least are made into films, Atlas Shrugged and The um, Fountainhead, pushing this radically individualistic, virtually anarchistic vision of how, how 
life should run, super hostile to government, and celebrating the notion of individual freedom. And this is what Rand is famous for, and this is what many of her followers love her for, this sort of celebration of individual freedom. But while she's writing these books, she is at the very same time writing censorship codes for Hollywood, censorship codes that explicitly say what you can and can't say in a film. So there's this massive hypocrisy that while she's celebrating freedom for herself and the people she likes, she's also working to deny the freedom of people who have dissenting views. And so in the book, we try to highlight that hypocrisy. So we have radio, television, film. Uh, we also have a chapter about religion. I can talk more about that if you like. And then the other important part is academia. That the big way this works is by recruiting academics to be part of this in order to give it intellectual credibility, to make it seem like it's not just propaganda, but that it's actually a coherent intellectual program. And about that academia part, uh, there were actually campaigns to rewrite textbooks, correct? Right. This is another shocking part of this story. The explicit propagandistic um, attempt to influence textbooks and curricula in American schools and universities. So this goes back to the earlier part of our story. In the 1920s, one of the early arguments in the United States about market failure involves electricity. Because electricity had been developed in most parts of the world, in Europe and Japan and New Zealand, as a governmental function. People saw electricity as equivalent to water, like water delivery. So if you lived in a city, you would have water delivered to your home. You would also have electricity. But the United States, it was done differently, mostly as a private sector activity. And that turned out to work very well in big cities where electricity companies could make a good profit delivering electricity in places like New York, St. Louis, Chicago, but it didn't work in rural areas because there wasn't enough profit to be made. And so rural citizens in most parts of America had no electricity. And that was different than someplace like New Zealand. Um, we have a statistic in the book, but I think by 1930, something like 80 or 90% of New Zealanders had electricity, but in the United States, the figure was much, much lower. So this becomes a topic of political and cultural debate and, and is recognized as a kind of market failure. The market has failed to bring electricity to consumers who really not just want it, but arguably really need it. And so a proposal is made to develop something called giant power, which would be a kind of socialized electricity. It was a proposal in the state of Pennsylvania that the electricity generators would have to feed into a common pool. And then the state would build a grid that would distribute electricity to all citizens of the state of Pennsylvania. The electricity industry hated this. And so they launched a massive campaign, not just to fight the argument for um, public power, but to undermine the whole notion of government involvement in the marketplace. And so they they do a textbook campaign where they, they review all of the textbooks that are being used in schools and colleges across the country in economics, business, civics classes. They identify the ones that they think are insufficiently pro-market. And then they begin to pressure the authors to rewrite them, to write different versions that would be more sympathetic to the electricity industry and more sympathetic to free market economics in general. If the authors are not interested in doing that, then they recruit other people to write alternative textbooks. And then they pressure publishers and schools and public libraries to embrace and adopt these alternative textbooks. It was hard to find good evidence about how successful this campaign was, 
But we have circumstantial evidence that it was very effective. And we also know that they worked with universities, including Harvard, to change the curricula to make it more industry friendly. And we found some really interesting documents where some people at the Harvard Business School say, yeah, I'm not really that comfortable with this. I feel like this is a little bit inappropriate. And then other people say, oh, no, 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 this is great. They're giving us money. Money's good. And of course, that's what Harvard says today about fossil fuel money. So sometimes things don't really don't change. So the academic piece of the story is super important because it's a way in which they take these propagandistic ideas and try to give them intellectual credibility and teach them then to several subsequent generations of American school and college students. And so uh, earlier you mentioned Ronald Reagan there and how basically he rose to power. So uh, going to the late 70s, early 80s, with the rise of Margaret Thatcher in the UK and Ronald Reagan in the US and then what follow, followed after them. So what would you say are were some of the main changes implemented by neoliberal politicians? Well, the main, I'd say there's two main changes. One is sort of conceptual and the other is practical on the ground. So conceptually, one of the things we show in this book is that these campaigns were successful. It took time. They were not successful initially. In the 30s and 40s, people did not accept the electricity industry's argument. People supported the New Deal. FDR was elected four times. Um, and throughout the 50s and into the 60s and even the early 70s, public opinion polls consistently show that the American people support a strong federal government and want the federal government to protect workers, to protect the environment, to control tobacco and things like this. But it begins to change in the 1970s. And it begins to change conceptually in part because it's not just Republicans who accept it, it's Democrats too. And so Jimmy Carter comes into office. He's a Democrat, but he's a kind of pro-business, moderate Democrat. He's from the South. He himself is a farmer, a peanut farmer. And an argument is made that American markets are overregulated. And this is a good example of an argument that has some truth in it. In the book, we argue that you know there was there was there was a reasonable case to be made, particularly certain industries like aviation, virtually every country in the world regulated aviation in the early years, back in the 20s, 30s, as a fledgling industry, as an industry that in order to get it off the ground, in this case, literally, um, needed support, needed nurturing. And virtually every country in, in Europe had a national air carrier, like you know British Airways, which used to be BOAC, British Overseas Airline, TAP, the airline of Portugal, Air France, these were all government-supported, government-subsidized national carriers. And the United States, we didn't have a single national carrier, but we did subsidize aviation. And there were all kinds of rules and regulations that were actually anti-competitive in order to support this fledgling industry. So an argument was made in the 70s that that was no longer appropriate, that this industry could stand on its own two feet. Trucking was another example a hodgepodge of regulations, some of which were highly contradictory, didn't necessarily make sense. So there was a credible argument for revisiting some of these regulations in light of, you know, it was a different time, a changed world, conditions change, and the rules and regulations you need for markets change too. So we don't think that Jimmy Carter was wrong to do that, but he set in place a set of, he set in motion a set of reforms based on the idea that lots of things could be left to the market. And, and we definitely see evidence of the kind of arguments 
that we've been tracking all along the book beginning to take hold in this period so that Democrats as well as Republicans embrace this anti-regulatory ideology. But then Ronald Reagan takes it one step further. And we think this is kind of a key moment in the story. So Carter was talking about deregulating markets, how the market functions, aviation, trucking, stuff like that. Reagan, though, uses the word regulation to refer to two different things. One is deregulating markets, but the other is weakening statutes that protect the environment and workers. And Mm -hmm. we would argue that that's a really different thing. We should actually have, we need a second word for that. Um, Environmental protection is not regulation in the same way that, you know, setting minimum, um, you know, rates for trucking or maximum rates for trucking. It's, It's a different kind of thing, but Reagan conflates the two. And so he uses the anti-regulatory language, the anti-government language, to try to roll back environmental statutes. Now, he doesn't actually get very far with that, because at the time, the American people are strongly in favor of environmental protection. They still are today. And he doesn't have the votes in Congress to roll back key environmental laws. So what he does is simply not enforce them. And so there's a whole period under Ronald Reagan, and this becomes a template for later right-wing leadership to simply not enforce the statutes that are on the book. And so we see a dramatic weakening of environmental protection, um, weakening of protections for workers, occupational health and safety, this sort of thing. But then, so that's kind of the ideological part, but it becomes pragmatic through the non-enforcement of statutes. But then it gets even worse under Bill Clinton. And I have to say, writing this book, I feel like as a scholar, you always know you're doing a good job if you discover things you didn't know before you started. So we did not know about the whole Little House on the Prairie story until we dug into it. Um, We became more sympathetic to Jimmy Carter's market deregulation than we were when we started writing the book, but became way less sympathetic to Bill Clinton. Because what Clinton does is he really embraces the deregulatory ideology. It's Bill Clinton who declares in the 1990s, not Ronald Reagan, but Bill Clinton, that the era of big government is over. So we see that Clinton has embraced this idea that big government is a problem. And one of the things he does is to deregulate telecommunications. In the United States, prior to Clinton, there were all kinds of rules and regulations about telecommunication because of the concept that communication is central in a democracy. And so one of those rules was was about ownership that no one person could own too many radio stations, for example. There were other rules too, but this one's a really important one. So that rule is thrown out. And after the deregulation of telecommunications, one person or one company can own hundreds or even thousands of radio stations. And that is what has happened in the United States since the 1990s. So instead of fostering competition, which is in principle what free market capitalism is supposed to be about, it actually reduces competition. And so today in the United States, a huge number of radio stations in the thousands is owned by one corporation, the Sinclair Company, which is a right-wing corporation. And almost all of the stations broadcast right-wing talk radio, people like Glenn Beck, Rush Limbaugh, and or what's known as Christian contemporary. So it's right-wing Christian evangelical and many, many parts of the country. And I can attest to this because I've been on book tours in places like Oklahoma and Mississippi. If you turn on the radio, you cannot hear anything but pop music or right-wing talk radio or Christian nationalism. And so we argue that this has had a really profound effect on American culture and politics. And it's part of the reason 
why so many Americans now, well, we don't say this in the book, but I think we could have, so many Americans believe that the last presidential election was stolen from Donald Trump because this is what they hear on the radio and it's the only thing they hear. That's really impressive. And, and talking about the effects of neoliberal capitalism, I mean, for the plazers on, I imagine that there are many, many things we could focus on here, like unionization, like workers' rights, salaries, benefits, working conditions, social security, pushing for the privatization of key services and sectors. Uh, I mean, many, many things. But what would you say are perhaps some of the most severe and telling social and economic effects of neoliberalism? I'd say in the United States, the most consequential effect has been the massive growth of income inequality and the massive concentration of wealth in the hands of a very few people, not even just the top 1%, but the top 0.1 or 0.01%, concentrations of wealth that had not been seen in this country since the late 19th century, since the Gilded Age and the people that we call robber barons. Um, so we've had massive concentration of wealth, and I think that's super consequential in, in several ways. First of all, it leads to a huge distortion of the political process and really undermines democracy because we have individuals like Elon Musk who can buy a social media platform like what used to be called Twitter, decide yeah. who does and doesn't get to speak on that platform, uh, foster disinformation. There's very little that can be done about it because of uh, the way free speech rights have been interpreted by the American courts. Uh, the massive concentration of wealth is bad for people's health. We know that income inequities lead to health disparities. We saw this very clearly during COVID where people of lower income were much more likely to die of COVID, even if they didn't have pre-existing conditions. So there's huge impacts on health. We've seen an impacts on life expectancy. I mean, to me, the most compelling critique of what's going on in America today and the way we know for sure that we're doing something wrong is that after nearly a century of expanded life expectancy and in a world where life expectancy continues to increase, in the Western European social democracies, life expectancy in the United States has fallen in, the, in recent years. Americans live shorter lives, and that is true across the board. It's not just because poor Americans live shorter lives and bring down the average, although that is true, but even a healthy, wealthy white American like myself, there were some statistics that just got published recently. If you compare someone like myself, a 64-year-old white woman living in America, to the equivalent 64-year-old white woman living in Germany, France, or England, that person living in Europe will live longer than this equivalent person in the United States. And that's really proof, I think, that we are doing something wrong, that something in our system is just not working. And then the other thing, of course, is the impact on democracy. So it's not just that wealthy people can buy politicians, but of course we know that they can and they do, but also that it undermines people's faith in democracy. And we're seeing this very clearly in the United States now, that lots of people, both on the right and the left, are losing faith in American democracy. They don't believe that their voice is being heard. And not surprisingly, because if you look again at public opinion polls, you see what the American people believe. The American people believe that women should have abortion rights, that we should control gun violence, that we should protect the environment, that we should act on climate change. But none of that is happening in Congress. And if you look at what is happening in Congress, there's a very, very strong correlation that the laws that are passed by Congress match 
the desires and the interests of the top 1% and not the desires and the interests of the vast majority of the American people. And so that tells us that our democracy is not representative. It's not representing our interests. And that turns people against democracy. And that, I think, is a very frightening state of affairs. And by the way, when I mentioned a list of the possible effects that we could talk about here, I would like to ask you specifically, because this one really freaked me out back when I first saw the first pieces of news about this back in March, I think. What is the situation with child labor currently in the US? Because I saw, as I said, the first news about that back in March 2023, and I was like, just what is happening there? I know. You know, one of the things that's crazy about doing the work that Eric Conway and I do, sometimes we'll talk to each other and think, well, you think anybody would ever try to do X? And we think, oh, no, they would never go that far. And then they do. So our yeah. book begins with the debate over child labor. And it's not because we realized or predicted that people would try to bring, bring back child labor. No, not in our wildest nightmares. We began with it because it was a really good place to look at the arguments that were being made about the rights of business people to run their businesses as they see fit, so essentially property rights, versus the role of the government in protecting the innocent, uh, the vulnerable. And we know that in the United States, children as young as two years old worked in textile mills here in Massachusetts. It was routine for children as young as six to work in a variety of different industries. In, in Europe as well, uh, young children often worked as chimney sweeps because they mm -hmm. were small. It was considered that they were they were particularly good at that. And there were other jobs in factories where children's small hands, it's a little bit like the um, movie Snowpiercer. Uh, I don't want to give away the ending for people who haven't watched it, but if you've seen that movie, you know what I'm talking about. So um, there was a big movement in the early 20th century to greatly reduce child labor, not necessarily eliminate it completely, but greatly reduce it on the grounds that children belonged in school where they could be educated and they could have an opportunity to thrive, not just survive, but thrive in American culture. And that and that argument won. So child labor was greatly reduced after um, the New Deal and public education was greatly expanded. So by, by the time the World War II is over, very few children under 15 are working in the workforce in America, except like you know, paper routes and other, you know, safe kinds of things. I mean, a lot of this is about children working in dangerous workplaces like mines, factories, textile mills. So in the last two years, there has been a movement in the United States to bring back child labor, to weaken the laws protecting children, uh, to make it legal for children to work even in really dangerous conditions like meat packing plants. And we've yeah. now seen, I think, 14 states have... Uh, weakened protections for child labor. And what's really been, well, de it's depressing on so many levels. There was a expose, I think it was in the New York Times, about a child who, like 14 or 15 years old, who worked all night in a meatpacking plant, uh, cleaning equipment using caustic and dangerous chemicals, and then went to school the next day. And how could any child be expected to do well in school when they have not slept? I mean, that's just yeah. basic. So what is the defense of child labor? Well, it's really interesting to see that the arguments are being made today are exactly the same as the arguments that were being made before, uh, that, the, that this is a question of parental rights, that the government shouldn't intervene, uh, putting intervene in quotation marks in the marketplace. Um, and a lot of this involves anti-immigrant sentiment. 
And that was the same in the 1920s and it's the same. And therefore, in my opinion, a lot of it is, I don't like to throw the word racism around. I feel that that word is often used too casually, but I think a lot of this is certainly implicitly, if not explicitly racist, because there's a kind of assumption that those people, again, in quotation marks, um, in the 1920s, the argument was made that those people belonged in factories, that that was their natural place in life. So it was linked to a kind of social Darwinist eugenicist notion about fundamental inequalities among people, and that some people were just destined to work in factories. And so it was appropriate that their children would work in factories too. And those arguments were made explicitly in the 1920s. They went out of fashion, uh, but now they're back. And so you can hear right-wing politicians in this country basically saying, well, you know, this is where these children belong. This is their opportunity, as if real opportunity were in a factory and not in school. And I think there's a there's a veiled racism behind a lot of this, because as we know, immigrant children in the United States are very he like very heavily Hispanic. And many of the children who we know are working in, in dangerous workplaces in the United States today are the children of Hispanic immigrants. Yeah. That's really very frightening. <laughs> That's all I can say. So depressing. Uh, like depressing that people could be so venal as to really think that that's a good thing. But, you know, and and factory owners want to hire children because they're cheaper. I mean, this really mm -hmm. does boil down to profits. It's yeah. a way of making money at the expense of the health and well-being of these children and teenagers. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm looking at the, our time limit, but hopefully we can go through just two final questions. So do you sure. think that uh, these effects that we've talked about are inevitable effects of capitalism, whatever kind of flavor, but uh, or that they are the effects of this particular kind of brand of capitalism based on free market fundamentalism? Well, I'm a historian and historians don't believe that anything is inevitable. We believe that almost everything is contingent, right? And okay. that the history of culture is a history of people making choices that could have been different. And that, to me, that's really the essence of doing historical work because when we see what these arguments were, how they were developed, who promoted them, we see in this case, particularly how powerful people, moneyed interests really promoted a particular vision of capitalism at the expense of alternative visions. And so that leads to the second part of the answer to your question. So if we compare what goes on in Europe today with what goes on in the United States, we call we call all these economies capitalist because they're essentially market forward economies that embrace strong protections for property rights. And yet we see there there's quite a variety of how that's actually played out. And so in the European social democracies, we see much stronger protections for workers, uh, shorter work weeks, longer vacations, yet European countries are just about as wealthy as the United States, and we know they're healthier. Um, we talked about this already a minute ago. Uh, Europeans live longer than the equivalent Americans, and probably to me, the most important of all, they're happier. Every single study that has looked at happiness, and it's not always an easy thing to measure, but to the extent that we can measure happiness, contentment, People who live in the European social democracies always come out at the top of the charts. And America is actually pretty low down. There are people living in countries quite a bit poorer than the United States who report a much higher level of happiness. And so that tells me that our version of capitalism, our sort of extreme 
um, I would call it kind of heartless, um, unsympathetic capitalism, um, kind of nasty and brutish capitalism is bad for people. And it's not even really great for our economy because our economy isn't really doing any better than let's say Germany, for example. So the argument we make at the end of the book is based on that observation and to say, look, capitalism can be understood and can be implemented in very different ways. Uh, if you go back to Adam Smith, we haven't talked about Adam Smith, but he appears in the book too. Even his vision of capitalism is not the vision of what's going on in the United States today. Adam Smith argued for banking regulation and for the rights of workers and for unionization. Um, so our view is maybe we need bigger reforms in the fullness of time and we wouldn't rule out that possibility, but big reforms are hard to implement. Um, revolutions often go badly. So rather than make a kind of utopian argument for a utopian vision of some completely different economic system, which no doubt will eventually develop. I mean, there will be future economic systems that we can't yet imagine right now, just as there've been different systems in the past. But at least for now, we think the most plausible argument to make is simply to say, capitalism doesn't have to be this brutish and capitalism doesn't have to you know, crush people the way it did in the late 19th century in America and the way it is again today. Now, to play my own devil's advocate, the big question mark there and the place that I'm still left trying to decide if I'm buying my own argument, because um, it is actually fun to be honest about these questions that you're left with. And maybe this is the next book. The big question mark there is climate change, because even the European social democracies are not doing very well on that front, a little better than America. Europeans have lower carbon footprints than uh, Americans and sometimes quite a bit lower. But still, you guys are not doing that much better than we are. And we're running out of time to address the climate crisis. I think this year, especially, we've seen all across the world damaging impacts of climate change. And nobody, capitalist, communist, whatever, seems to be really coming to grips with this in a substantive way. And so that, I think, is the kind of you know, it's what we call in the United States, the $69,000 question. That's not the right thing. I don't know, $100,000 question it used to be a TV game show. Um, the $100,000 question, can we reform capitalism enough to deal with the climate crisis? Because if we can't, then I think things will go very badly. And well, that was the subject of my book with Eric, The Collapse of Western Civilization. So if you want to be depressed, you can read that book. <laughs> if you don't want to be depressed, read the big myth, because there we end with a sort of more optimistic note about the possibilities for different versions of capitalism. Right. But uh, just one final question, then, and I want to, uh, really wanted to ask you about this, because, uh, I mean, I am a science interviewer, a, philosoph a philosophy interviewer as well, and to a certain extent, a science communicator. And I really loved your book, Merchants of Doubt, and this one as well. But, uh, I mean, what do you think are the perhaps messages that you would want for science communicators to get from this uh, one book, this latest book? Because I, I got the sense that back when people were exposed to merchants of doubt, they really were worried, got worried about science denial surrounding tobacco and climate change and so on. But uh, perhaps to a certain extent, they missed that one big element there was the profit motive. And in this particular case, perhaps some 
nefarious incentives coming particularly from this flavor of uh, free market fundamentalist capitalism or neoliberal capitalism, right? Yeah, that's a great question. I think what I would say about that is the message I want scientists to hear is that scientists have also bought, bought into this market magic, mm -hmm. you know, the, the magic of the marketplace. And I say that in part because of something we talk about in the introduction to the book. So some years ago here at Harvard, I was invited to a high profile uh, panel discussion, big audience, hundreds of people, famous scientists on the panel. And the students were asking a lot of hard questions about how we deal with the climate crisis. And every single one on the panel except me was invoking markets, you know, market-based mechanisms, carbon pricing, blah, blah, blah. And I'm not opposed to those things. I support carbon pricing. But two things, we have not been able to implement carbon pricing in this country, despite the fact that even conservative economists support it because of the political opposition and the political opposition is linked to the power of the fossil fuel industry. So that's where your profit motive kicks in. So just telling people, oh, have a price on carbon without addressing the political obstacles that are related to and linked to the power of money and corporate interests is really an inadequate answer. And when I left the, the meeting with a student, the student looked me in the eye and said, markets, markets, markets. Right. And I thought that was such a telling moment because this was in Cambridge, Massachusetts, one of the most famously liberal towns and the most famously liberal state in America. And all the scientists could say in response to the students' questions was markets, markets, markets. So I think scientists have to step back and ask themselves, why did they buy into this whole story that this problem would be solved by markets? Because we've now had 30 years since the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, 30 years for the markets to do their magic. And so far, the only magic we've seen is black magic. Great. So the book is, again, The Big Myth, How American Business Taught Us to Load Government and Love the Free Market. I'm leaving a link to it in the description box of this interview. And Dr. Oreskes, just before we go, apart from the book, would you like to tell people where they can find your work on the internet? Oh, uh, I'm pretty easy to find. My last name is unusual, Oreskes. Uh, if you Google Oreskes Harvard or Oreskes Books or go on the website of any good bookseller, uh, you should be able to find it. My book, Why Trust Science, was translated into Portuguese. Uh, the Big Myth is about to come out in France and French. So if any of your listeners read French, maybe there's a publisher listening who would like to publish The Big Myth. It's a harder book to publish in a foreign edition because it's big, but um, we could always consider a shortened version. Um, so yeah, our books have been translated into lots of languages, and that's very gratifying. The film version of Merchants of Doubt is available on Amazon Prime and other uh, other streaming services. So I think my work is generally pretty easy to find. I try as much as possible to publish in front of paywalls. Um, so yeah, I hope, uh, and if people are interested, the Portuguese edition of Why Trust Science would be an easy place to start. There's also Spanish, uh, a Spanish edition of Merchants of Doubt. So if if your readers read Spanish, I read Spanish and I can sometimes kind of make sense of Portuguese. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So thanks for asking. It's really been a pleasure talking to you. Great, great questions. No, thank you so much for coming on the show. I've been a big fan for a very long time. So it was a massive pleasure to everyone. Thank you. Great. Well, really good talking to you. And Hi, everyone. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. If you like what I'm doing, please consider supporting the show on Patreon or PayPal. You can find the links in the description box down below. 
And if you like the interview, please share it, leave a like, hit the subscription button and comment. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters. Perga Larson, Jerry Muller, Hans Frederick Sunda, Bernardo Seixas, Olaf Alex, Adam Castle, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollis, Enrique Lenia, John Connors, Philip Force Connolly, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegger, Rui Nassi, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Phil Kavanagh, Mirk, Michael Stormer, Samuel Andrea, Francis Ford, Tiago Nunes, Fergal Cusson, Harl Herzog, Nuno Machado, Jonathan Leibrand, John Nyars, Tantan T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, João Weira, Tom Hamel, Sardas France, David Sloan Wilson, Yassila Dez Araújo, Ruben Roach, Diego Londonio Correa, Yannick Punter, Adana Rosmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicola Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostasevsky, Nelek Bach, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, Sam Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Paul Tolentino, João Barbosa, Julian Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Douglas Frey, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortez, Ursula Litzke, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy, Sunny Smith, John Wisman, Daniel Friedman, William Buckner, Paul George Arnaud, Luke Loaki, Jorge Stiofanos, Chris Williamson, Peter Wolosin, David Williams, Diogo Costa, Anton Eriksson, Charles Murray, Alex Shaw, Amari Martinez, Coralie Chevalier, Bangalore Atheists, Larry D. Lee Jr., Old Herrigbon, Sterry, Michael Bailey, Dan Sperber, Robert Grassi, Zigoran, Jeff McMahon, Jake Zool, Barnabas Radix, Mark Campbell, Thomas Dobner, Luke Neeson, Chris Story, Kimberly Johnson, Benjamin Galbert, Jessica Nowicki, Linda Brandon, Nicholas Carlson, Ismael Benzliman, George Coriatis, Valentin Steinman, Perk Rollis, Kate Von Goller, Alexander Hubbard, Liam Dunaway, B.R., Masood Ali Mohammadi, Perpendicular, Jonas Hertner, Ursula Goodenough, Gregory Hastings, David Pinsoff, Sean Nelson and Mike Levine. A special thanks to my producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafiniak, Tom Van Egden, Bernard Yugni, Curtis Dixon, Benedict Mueller, Thomas Trumbull, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, John Carl Montenegro, Alni Cortez and Nick Golden, and to my executive producers, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Codriano, Bogdan Canivets and Rosie. Thank you for all. <laughs>